0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Sick of being upsold at gyms.
0: This is a song about gerrymandering, sung by a choir. Revolution Choir at revolutionchoir.com. And I want to thank Kevin at Revolution Choir for giving me this music that I could use in the podcast. This particular song is about gerrymandering, but the Revolution Choir has a lot of songs. Go to their website, find out what they're all about, and I'll play the full song at the end of the episode. That's right, we are talking about gerrymandering. Because the issue is now at the Supreme Court in the case of Gill versus Whitford. Involving state legislative districts in Wisconsin that were carved out for maximum party advantage. Seems right then to replay our Jerry and His Mander podcast that we did back in 2013. So you're going to learn about Elbridge Jerry. You know, he doesn't really deserve to be linked to this practice, but we'll talk about that. History hasn't changed But the issue has gone further in the court system, so I want to address that. In Cooper v. Harris, the court invalidated districts and sent back to the North Carolina legislature that were based on race. North Carolina was justifying it as a result of the Voting Rights Act. We have to create minority districts to give representation to our citizens under the Voting Rights Act. Supreme Court said, not the case. Also establishing a precedent that they could get involved in these type of cases. That one was odd because Clarence Thomas sided with the court's liberals. Now the court is looking at all partisan gerrymandering, not just race-based gerrymandering. It's a big issue because there's a lot of bipartisan on it. I mean, nobody likes these snake-like districts. They just seem to be the representation, visually, graphically, of political ambition. They don't make any sense. The crazy-shaped North Carolina districts. That Toledo-to-Cleveland snake-on-the-lake in Ohio. The Maryland Three, which is an outlier because most of the complaints about gerrymandering, at least now, not in history as we're going to talk about, but now, are a GOP gerrymandering. But Maryland Three is a Democratic gerrymander that looks like paint spilled on a canvas. And you'd have to go by boat to get from one end to the other without touching another district. Pennsylvania Seventh, it is joked, looks like goofy kicking donald duck so the issue is acknowledged as a negative one but how do you fix it all do you say well don't break up any towns in half don't have districts that go one side of the street and then the other side is a is another district you could fix that and still have some partisan gerrymandering according to experts do you try to mix urban and rural voters where you can. The so-called slice of the pizza versus the bagel. So you're making sure that you're representing both urban and rural regions. Do you ban certain car distances between towns in the same district and say, look, if you're well above the state or U.S. average, you can't have this district? Do you ban the use of snake-like shapes altogether or polyhedras Opponents of the Wisconsin bill have introduced something new, and it's called the efficiency gap. And this didn't make it into my 2013 podcast because it didn't exist. The efficiency gap is a little complicated, but at the same time, not. It's simply the difference between the party's respective wasted votes in an election divided by the total number of votes cast. And what's a wasted vote? A wasted vote is two things a vote for the candidate that didn't win the election or a vote that was one vote or more, more, than what the candidate needed to win. When a party gerrymanders a state, it tries to maximize those wasted votes. So, you can, by calculating the efficiency gap, the ratio, you can detect how much partisan gerrymandering there is. That's the proposal before the court now. Opponents challenge that the system generates false positives. Do you have you know, efficiency gaps in the zone, but they're not partisan gerrymandered districts that anybody knows. They just occurred in nature. That's an argument. And there's also a First Amendment and 14th Amendment argument opposing these type of fixes. The First Amendment argument that's pretty new is that you're subverting one's right to advocate through their representatives and get the best political outcome for one's party equal protection clause court is intervening in politics and denying some people the the same representation as others the oral arguments in the case Gil v. whitford was held and were predictable sotomayor kagan ginsburg Breyer, liberals on the court focused their questions on the right to vote funny i would like to ask you what's really behind all of this, the precious right to vote. If you can stack a legislature in this way, what incentive is there for a voter to exercise his vote, whether it's a Democratic district or a Republican district? The result, using this map, the result is preordained in most of the districts. Isn't that – I mean – what becomes of the precious right to vote? Will we have that result? When the- Protecting the meaningfulness of a person's right to vote. Samuel Alito and Neil Gorsuch complained about the usefulness of this standard that they were applying. Alito says, Is this the time for us to jump into this? It's an untested kind of standard. Neil Gorsuch said that the standard would be like the dry rub he puts on stake. Everybody's is a little different. We know from that that Neil Gorsuch puts turmeric on his stake, apparently. Chief Justice Roberts said average people would think the court was siding with one party or the other. I would think if these, if the claim is allowed to proceed, there will naturally be a lot of these claims raised around the country. Politics is a very important driving force, and those claims will be raised. And Every one of them will come here for a decision on the merits. These cases are not within our discretionary jurisdiction. They're the mandatory jurisdiction. We will have to decide in every case whether the Democrats win or the Republicans win. So it's going to be a problem here across the board. Uh, uh, And if you're the intelligent man on the street and the court issues a decision and, let's say, okay, the Democrats win, and that person will say, well, why did the Democrats win? And the answer is going to be because E.G. was greater than 7%, where E.G. is the sigma of party X wasted votes minus the sigma of party Y wasted votes over the sigma of party X votes plus party Y votes. And the intelligent man on the street is going to say, that's a bunch of baloney. There would be many cases coming to the court that would reduce the prestige of the the court. So we really know where a lot of people stand on this. It's down to Anthony Kennedy. And his questions circled all around. And, you know, they made a big deal of the fact that he didn't ask any questions of one of the plaintiff's lawyers, Smith, so that maybe he's siding that way. I'd be really hesitant to make predictions like that. It's probably going to come down to a matter of how spooked Kennedy is by the volume of cases that might come to the court. And Roberts did his best to kind of drive that point home. And in any case, Kennedy's one of those people that even if he does write the decision, he might come up with his own medium standard. He's not a textualist. He's looking at impact of the law as a major factor. I like the efficiency gap as a testing tool for this. I do wonder if the Supreme Court of the United States is ready to institute it. But don't be surprised if Anthony Kennedy comes up with something on his own or if the decision goes against the plaintiffs, but the Kennedy concurrence Gives a few breadcrumbs that helps the gerrymandering problem. What we do know about the problem is that it's not new. And so I give you, from 2013, Jerry and his Mander. Some of the founders of the United States have lent their names to great inventions, doctrines, accomplishments, even the capital of the United States of America. For Elbridge Gary, his name is today associated with a political trick the act of drawing representative district lines in a way that ensures your opponents will get less seats and you more. Not only has he lost his political dignity in history, but Gary lost the hard G in his name, and gerrymandering is now an international turn for a crime against democracy. Yet it is certainly fair to say that although he signed that bill in Massachusetts for redistricting, Gary did not create this maneuver, and so much of it has occurred since Gary's time. That you really can't lay all the blame with him. Gary deserves more than that. Harvard-educated merchant, he was a patriot and a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Governor of Massachusetts, the fifth vice president of the United States. Having met him in Continental Congress, John Adams, often a critic of people, was impressed. I found a faithful friend, an ardent, persevering lover of his country, he said about Gary. Soft-spoken, even... Stuttering at times, he nonetheless impressed some with his logical arguments. Charles Thompson, the Secretary of the Continental Congress, said, He cannot boast of the thunder of his voice, but when he speaks, he's assured of a superiority over his opponents. Gary participated along with Adams on some of the important committees, especially the appropriation of arms for the Revolution. But as the Revolution drew to a close, he went back to his home state of Massachusetts, And there, Gary's battle was with another signer of the Declaration. He felt that John Hancock, governor of Massachusetts, was acquiring too much power in the new state due to his fame as a revolutionary, his influence, and his wealth. His practice of trading patronage jobs, particularly justices of the peace, was, according to Gary, comparable to the actions of the royal governors they had fought against. Yet no one, it seemed, could stop Hancock, though Gary organized and tried. He only succeeded in diminishing his own political career. Indeed, after the revolution, Abigail Adams would write to him saying, I was looking for your names on the list of state offices and could not find it. I was so surprised. Though he did represent Massachusetts in the new Confederation Congress in New York City, Gary was a delegate to the Constitutional Convention. He participated in the debates fully, but in the end, he did not sign the Constitution. It was, he said, very painful for him. The Constitution provided too little security for the liberty of the people, he said. He hinted there were not enough representatives in the House. The Congress had powers that were ambiguous, and the President was too powerful, and his powers were blended with that of the people. The Senate could treat with other nations with just two-thirds of a quorum binding treaties, and there was no bill of rights. The irony is that Gary, although he was arguing for more representation for the people, would become associated in history with representation's worst maneuver. Gary was no man of street politics. He was a wealthy person. He was owner of federal securities. He was a shareholder in the Ohio Company, owner of lots of lands on the Muskegon River. Some issues he argued for a large federal government, particularly government that could protect the value of securities, which he owned, argued for the creation of a navy to protect merchant shipping trade. But yet, he was a Democrat, supporter of Jefferson, supporter of the rights of the people to have elections. He worried about the influence of groups like Washington's Friends, the Society of Cincinnati. Would they create a cabal that would effectively run the country? He was a supporter of the party of Jefferson, but he was not a partisan. He was still good friends with John Adams. And when President John Adams needed a representative to go to France who would be open to peace, not the ultra-federalist that Hamilton had given to Adams' administration, who won war with France, somebody who would be open if there was a peace offering to be had, he sent Gary. Thus, in 1800, running for governor of Massachusetts, Gary called himself a federal Republican. Gary was advertised as the inflexible patriot of 75, the friend of Adams opposed to a standing army, appealing to all people, even in league with Hancock forgetting his opposition to the late Hancock. He lost the 1800 election, but if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. He won in 1810. An engraving is a series of cuts made into a copper plate with a very sharp knife, usually aided by a good eye, perhaps helped by a good, strong lens. Engravers would develop pictures that would pop off the page and help newspapers sell more copies. Engravers were practice professionals and careful about their secrets. One of them was O'Connor Tisdale, known for his ability to cross etch and to make images in a three-dimensional way. Readers of the Gazette during Gary's governorship would have seen a large serpent with a monstrous head and clawed feet, hugging Some of the counties of Massachusetts. Well, Tisdale had set his etching to expose a dirty political trick. The Republicans in Massachusetts, controlling the state at this time, had redistricted the state and carved out a district that ringed around the numerous Federalist strongholds north of Boston in order to have one district from Salisbury to Haverhill to Marblehead, a ring that looked unnatural, not like one community. And in the artist etching, it was a serpent. The caption read, A new species of monster has appeared in the recent elections. The gerrymander. Designed to drown out the Federalist voice. Indeed, all of the Federalist counties had been grouped into one district. And the gerrymander wrapped around it, linking together all of the towns of Republican thinking. In the Independent Chronicle, the Democratic newspaper, the Democrats said, The Federalists have drawn a picture of themselves in the Gazette without intending it. They're exposed at one view, all their malignant, venomous, lizard-like qualities. In other words, I'm robber, you're glue. The gerrymander was effective in this way, though, in those Senate elections. Eighteen twelve, Democrats got 29 seats in the Massachusetts State Senate, and the Federalists got 11. This despite the fact that more people voted Federalist. They edged out the Democrats by about 500 votes in the statewide count. History beats up politics, but it's not often the case that the history is linguistically coded in the politics of today, in the word we use today to describe what has become a common phenomenon. When victors win, they not only get the spoil, they also try to arrange the rules so that they can win again and again and again, even when they lose elections. Techniques such as cracking, packing, are designed to protect incumbents and preserve party majorities by grouping together likely opposition, like Gary did to the Federalists, into small spaces, diluting their votes in an entire legislature, or maximizing the spread of one's opponents into as many districts as possible, diluting the effect across the state. Thus, in the 2012 election, something interesting happened. More voters went to the polls, casting ballots for President Obama. Yet 55% of the members of the House of Representatives will be of the opposite party, the Republicans. This should not be startling. Americans like divided government, right? Checks and balances. So we sent the one man to the White House, and we sent those guys to check on him. Except that's not what happened. In the election, a few more, well a couple hundred thousand votes more, voted for Democratic candidates for House of Representatives, than Republican candidates for House of Representatives. Yet this gerrymandering is nothing new. It has a long history. It has been the subject of battles in the past and will be the subject of battles in the future. It played a role in the Democrats' 40-year rule of Congress and in the election of a powerful Democratic Speaker of the House. It played a role in the preservation of the Union during the Civil War in a quite important state, and even in the career of a certain state senator in Chicago turned POTUS. It may have been responsible for the demise of an American hero, and almost eliminated an American president from consideration. It may be enhanced by the computer, and it could be perhaps mitigated by the computer. Should we even seek a solution to this problem, it may be found with judges or perhaps with novel ideas in two states, Iowa and California. We'll talk about all of this. There are certainly gerrymandering-like things that predated Elbridge Gerry's influence on politics. History Book of North Carolina from 1774 talks about the County of Jones having 2,000 residents with the same representation as Orange with 25,000. In Pennsylvania's colonial government, they had a system where there would be four representatives in the assembly from each county two from the city of Philadelphia but then to increase the influence of the city on politics bucks and chester counties were separated from the city they'd been part of the city before and added the seats to the legislature to make sure the city area had the influence then the assembly just gave four more seats to Philadelphia so it always maintained that influence it was common for royal governors in colonial times to simply add seats to the colonial legislature so he she could have more allies. This was done in New York. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face off launches April 9th.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Was it better after the United States was created? Not really. After the 1776 State Convention in Virginia that state was divided into 24 senatorial districts. No county in Virginia was divided. Districts consisted of from one to three counties. Now, so you can arrange whether the districts has one county, two counties, three counties, in order to arrange their representation in the best manner for your party. Tidewater districts, the eastern part of Virginia, the plantation area, the slave-owning districts, had about 19,000 men, and they had 12 senators, half the Senate. The whole rest of the state had 30,000 men, much larger area, and just 12 senators, half the Senate. So generally, Tidewater was running Virginia. In 1790, Pennsylvania had already sought to ban such behavior, prevent the division of the city of Philadelphia or any county when considering district. Counties had to be adjoining. New states of Kentucky and Tennessee joined these provisions. All of this gerrymandering and anti-gerrymandering was going on already. It goes to show you how important visual images are, even though there was no television. process was going on, but no one thought to draw a salamander in the newspaper. Now we'll discuss someone who was accused of gerrymandering, but may not have done so, Patrick Henry. It was said that as the congressional elections of 1788 began, Henry targeted James Madison adding anti-federalist voters to his district in order to defeat him. It is true that Patrick Henry had great sway in the Virginia legislature. It is true that some counties that were anti-federalist were added into James Madison's 5th district in 1788 during this process. But I've also seen refutations of this in uh, political science journals and books. The 5th District in Virginia was no Jerry-like monster. Madison's 5th District was a collection of Piedmont towns, counties that would have fit together nicely, all bordering the Blue Ridge Mountains. It included Madison's home in Orange County and Thomas and Jefferson's home in Albemarle. Yet it contained only two Federalist-leaning counties to five anti-Federal-leaning and one divided. But Albemarle, Culpepper, and Orange were the heavy population centers of those districts. And that's where Madison won his vote against his opponent, James Monroe. It seems that a letter from Washington before the process of redistricting Virginia even began, warning some friends that maybe Madison was being targeted, and the comments of a Federalist writer, writing what might be called a little bit of propaganda in the newspaper during the process, might be responsible for spreading that story through history. Indeed, the newspaper writer was challenged on the point when he alleged that Madison's district was unfairly drawn. A letter writer challenged the writer named Odysseus. he used pen names back then in the papers, who said, please produce a map of what you're saying about Madison's district. The way you described it, it sounds like it had been split in a thousand angles. And the Federalist writer, decius was forced to say, no, there's no problem with the Fifth District as it is. I'm worried about redistricting that might occur, counties that might be added to Madison's district. So it's either a story that just simply isn't true, or Patrick Henry may have planned to redistrict but decided not to when he got caught. In 1861, the state of Indiana was torn between two factions— One was Democrats who supported the war effort, but only as a tool of reconciliation with the South. Opposing them was Governor Oliver Morton and the Republican Party who supported full prosecution of the war and saw Indiana as a key source of arms and soldiers to do it. The nomination of neighboring state candidate Lincoln in the 1860 election had opened up Indiana, which for 20 years had been Democrat, to the new Republican Party. During the election, Democrats said Republicans would bring war, the torch, fire, and blood. Republicans countered that the Indiana democracy were disunionists. Voters sided with the Republicans, and they won the legislature as Lincoln carried the state. 37-year-old Morton, a massive and rugged man, with what was described as a deep, sonorous voice. A winning circuit lawyer known throughout the state took control. Some Republicans wanted to appease the Democrats and appease the South to avoid a war now that it was so close. Morton had been a conservative and had talked like that previously. But now as governor, he said, no, there's no right to secession and no one more than Indiana had to enforce it. After all, the West is in the most vulnerable position. We don't want to be bottled up in the interior of two warring states on the coast. As South Carolina seceded and other states threatened to follow, Morton said, we aren't going to surrender the Union with a few harsh words. It was time for force. This speech of a Western Republican governor came at a time when Lincoln was not yet present and could not enforce the law. It came at a time when politicians in the U.S. were deciding between coercion and compromise. When a peace conference was held in Washington, Morton sent five delegates, men that were committed to enforcing the union and its laws, and they did everything they could to procrastinate, to make sure that that peace convention didn't do anything until Lincoln took office. He and his new Republican legislature wanted to create a more official state militia and something else. They submitted a new plan that would give the Republicans, through careful redistricting, taking maximum advantage of the Republican strength in the river areas and the city vote, more districts they would do their best to stick the southern and rural Indiana voters into a few butternut democrat districts. And they came up with a gerrymandered state district map that would likely elect just two Democrats to Congress, along with 11 Lincoln-supporting Republicans. What did the Democrats do? Well, they did what sometimes legislators do these days when they're in the minority. They bolted the Capitol to delay a quorum. Morton called them revolutionaries, secessionists. Republicans said they threatened the state with anarchy. But Indiana had a high quorum law. Two-thirds were needed to conduct business. So it was easy for the Democrats to cripple business in the state. Morton lost the battle. In order to have the state function and pass an appropriation bill, he had to compromise. He reluctantly dropped the militia bill and the gerrymander. Didn't stop Morton from supporting the Union effort, and he was in Washington to welcome Lincoln upon his arrival. He pledged the support of Hoosiers to fight for the Union cause. Indiana would get a quota of 4,300 from the War Department and send 12,000. As war broke out, it was a great disadvantage to the Democrats politically. Democrats were called excusers and traitors. Indiana Senator Jesse Bright was thrown out of the Senate for his support of the Buchanan administration in the South. He had been caught writing a letter to Jefferson Davis and calling him His Excellency the President. In this atmosphere, Governor Morton became so powerful initially that in 1861, many Democrats called for nonpartisan elections, no party label. 61,000 Indiana volunteers would enlist and fight for the Union, and indeed, Indiana soldiers would be in the Union Army from Bull Run to Appomattox. He created a special President Lincoln Brigade. So many Hoosiers volunteered for the Union Army that Secretary of War Cameron actually asked the state to calm down. There might not be pay for all of these volunteers. Morton took other actions. Without the legislature, he secured guns in Philadelphia and built a state armory. He even ran out of patience with his own President Lincoln when the President refused to invade Kentucky and wanted to observe that state's neutrality. But war fever could only last so long in a state, and as 1861 turned to 1862, there was a backlash and Democrats rallied. Future Vice President Thomas Hendricks led a convention which supported only the maintenance of the war for the maintenance of the Constitution. It condemned Morton's illegal actions, the new state and federal taxes. Furthermore, in a sure bit of red meat for any Hoosier, he said... Indiana was now becoming the hewers of wood and drawers of water for the capitalists in New England. Westerners must preserve the Union, Hendricks said, but if that doesn't work, the Northeast must take care of herself, a hint at a Northwestern Confederacy opposing the Eastern lust for power. It was success talk, Morton said, a wild and wicked dream to talk about dividing the country from the West. Yet 1862 was bringing dismal results for the Union Army and Lincoln's suspension of habeas corpus was not popular in Indiana, nor were many of the actions of the Republican president. War enthusiasm dampened with the failure of McClellan's Peninsula Campaign, and now Morton had trouble filling Indiana's quotas. Even some Indiana Republicans were promising not to support any anti-slavery measures. Lincoln's first Emancipation Proclamation, issued before the midterms of 62, was not popular in Indiana. And a Confederate invasion of Kentucky scared the residents of the state. In October 1862, Democrats won the state elections by 9,000 votes. So badly was he beaten that the Democratic papers called it a repudiation and asked Morton to resign. Morton, in turn, put the state government on high alert to expect revolution at any time. Morton fumed that treason had won in the elections, and he looked for scapegoats. The Army of Ohio had failed to protect the West. The Army needed now to open up the Mississippi to restore Indiana's economy, its trading, which was based on the river. He wrote to the president, encouraging a force, which would eventually lead to the siege of Vicksburg. Democrats got busy when they took over the legislature. They wanted to do the same thing that was done to them, gerrymandered the districts, this time to favor Democrats. On February 25th, 1863, it was minority Republicans who bolted the legislature. They met as a group on the Kentucky border, waiting for word of the governor of what to do, ready to bolt the state. Democrats, forgetting that they had done the same before, called the action partisan, shabby, dereliction of duty. Governor Morton, forgetting that he had branded Democrats not too long ago as revolutionaries for bolting the state, said his party was only taking actions to restore the state from ruin. The result of all these civil war back and forth gerrymandering attempts was a draw. And just as Republicans had done before, Democrats were forced to compromise to pass an appropriation bill. The Congress during the civil war had seen an increased number congressmen opposed to the conduct of the war, particularly from Maryland, Ohio, Kentucky. Sending more from Indiana might have crippled the war effort. Now, It may not have saved the Union, but the actions of Morton and the Republicans in preventing a gerrymander did save Lincoln some headaches. Indeed, gerrymandering is serious business with serious political consequences. It is claimed at least two famous victims in one case may have cost a man his life. In a way. On the House floor, Whigs generally associated with northern cities were quite pleased to see a man from the western frontier agreeing with them and against Andrew Jackson, the Western President of Tennessee, on the forceful removal of Indians from their lands. This was Davy Crockett, not the Disney movie character, not the folktale hero, but the politician, a congressman from Western Tennessee, who, because of disputes over federal spending on roads and canals for his beloved hometown area, Gibson County, and because of his opposition to removing Indians from their land, differed with the White House and spoke loudly about it though Crockett always maintained his independence. He was not a Whig. Look at my arms and you will find no party handcuffs on them. Look at my neck and you will find no collar, he said. He had become the darling of Whigs in New York and New England, who were elated that they had a man to speak for them. Democrats didn't care about his professed independence. Punishment was swift. As far as the Jacksonians were concerned, coonskin cap be damned. Crockett was a Whig. They controlled the Tennessee state legislature, and thus were in charge of redistricting the state's congressional seats. The 1833 election, Davy Crockett was gerrymandered. Crockett represented the area around what is now the city of Memphis and thereabouts, his hometown of Tom County of Gibson, and he was popular there. They took away Shelby County, where his supporters were, and gave him Madison County, which was full of supporters of Jackson. The new district, Crockett complained, was not a single community the most unreasonably laid off of any in the state, perhaps in the nation, or perhaps in the teetotal of creation. He won the first election by a few hundred votes, but could not survive in the new district in the 1835 elections, where he was defeated, and the next year took his rifle and went to the Alamo. Had he a seat in Congress, he might have been in Washington at the time instead. Who killed Crockett? Sarana or gerrymandering? Another famous gerrymandering, was the 1890 Ohio redistricting that defeated William McKinley. The state legislature was controlled by Democrats, and McKinley was a hated national figure in that party. McKinley was a Republican, and he had, as the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, promoted a protectionist tariff. became a major issue in the national campaign. Democrats redrew McKinley's district so that he retained only one Republican county, his home county, from his old district, and the rest Democrat. He lost the election. The people of Ohio, however, resented McKinley's ouster in this way and promptly elected him as governor. His victory in the governor's race led to McKinley's nomination and election as president in 1896. Sometimes there's a backlash. Still, knowing that there's a history to this practice cannot be of any comfort to a voter who realizes that his or her community has been packed, that is, put into a district of like minds for maximum diluting in a legislature, Gary's alleged crime, or cracked, split up to dilute the effect of voters in any one district, as during the 1960s the voters of Birmingham, Alabama had been. And the history can't be of any solace to an incumbent who has been kidnapped. Athens, Georgia, is a town of over 100,000 situated in and near the University of Georgia, Its music scene grew in the early 1970s and later during the 1980s, with bands such as R.E.M. and the B-52s scoring hits. Other bands, widespread panic in the Indigo Girls, Matthew Sweet, Love Tractor, got their start in what is called the Liverpool of the South. But in Georgia politics, it's not the music that Athens is known for. It's its odd island of Democratic votes in the middle of the woods in an otherwise very Republican area. It could at times help elect a Democrat, as it did when a former Athens councilman, John Barrow, won a seat to U.S. Congress when he defeated a Republican incumbent in 2004, with help of those music-loving Athens voters casting ballots before the next show at the 40-Watt Club. As one of the few white Democrats in the South, Barrow, of course, became a target. First, he was kidnapped. This means that they took his hometown and put it into another district. That's no problem. He simply moved. He moved to Savannah, which was still in his district, ran for re-election, and won. Then Republicans in the Georgia legislature dissected cities, split up Savannah, split up Athens to dilute the Democratic vote into more districts where it may not affect anyone. Athens itself was divided into two districts, neither of which Bauer represented anymore. To dodge the kidnapping a second time, Barrow had to move from Savannah now to Augusta. Barrow styles himself a blue dog. He's not a loyal follower of President Obama in lockstep. He voted for the stimulus bill against health care reform. He's pro-choice, but one of those Democrats who requested amending the health care reform bill so that it did not cover abortion except in the case of rape, incest, or life of the mother. I have a brand that is substantially different from the two warring tribes up here in Washington, Barrow said. In 2012, at least, Bauer was able to avoid the kidnapping attempt and still win. Kidnapping incumbents or adding unfavorable voters is a common tactic, of course, but one of the most common is packing designed to proportionately segment voters of certain areas into one district. This was Gary's party crime. Even President Obama in his Illinois state Senate district benefited from gerrymandering, not so much to win the election. He had already won his seat, was reelected, but he was able to pick up new voters and those from the so-called Gold Coast of Chicago. Voters that could help him in a future senatorial campaign with money and also helped in his run for president. One of the most obnoxious examples for years had been California's 23rd congressional district. One thin little snake of a district that goes all the way up a narrow strip of coast through central California. It was eliminated recently in the 2010 redistricting. There's a reason for some of these tricks. It used to be that you could preserve seats for your party or for certain incumbents simply by malapportioning voters. At one point in the California legislature, a tiny district in rural California had one state senator, though it had a population of 14,000, and the city of Los Angeles had a state senator as well, meaning that the L.A. State Senate District had 422 times the population of that small rural district, yet they both just got one state senator. Nevada, Ohio were among the states with such crazy differences between seats. But one of the great beneficiaries of such malapportionment was House Speaker Sam Rayburn. He represented about 200,000 voters. The congressman next door, Representative Bruce Alger, had to represent 900,000. One of Speaker Sam Rayburn's tenets is that you shouldn't lose control of the mind of your district. You should get to know your district well. Fewer voters means fewer people to keep happy, and presumably, as long as you don't mess up in a big way, everyone in Rayburn's district loved Mr. Sam. But Rayburn wasn't the first to do it. He had a predecessor, another Speaker of the House from Texas, John Nance Garner, who, as Chairman of Texas Assembly's reapportionment Committee in 1900, used it to deliberately shape a new congressional district for, well, himself. But this weapon was eliminated by the Supreme Court in 1962. The Supreme Court said maps could not be malapportioned. It violated the 14th Amendment. This Supreme Court decision was too late for a crucial election. In 1942, Sam Rayburn managed to attain a 13-seat majority for the Democrats in the midterms of that year, even though his party won just 46% of the vote and Republicans won 51% of voters casting ballots for House races. That's far more skewed than the 2012 result. This occurred in the middle of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's third term, there was concerned about the conduct of World War II, the Pacific campaign, how it was going. There was concern about American involvement in the war, especially among Italian and German ethnic communities. Voters were becoming tired with Roosevelt. This was into his third term. Roosevelt's Democratic Party lost forty-five seats and retained that slender majority. It would have been interesting politics to have a Republican House in the middle of World War II. That's what voters wanted: fourteen million for the losing GOP to twelve point nine million for Roosevelt's winning party. Nor is it the only election. In 1996, Gingrich Republicans lost the popular vote, but held on to the House. One of the arguments used by Rayburn's Democrats and used by Republicans today and in 1996 is that, well, many of these seats were uncontested, so of course there were no popular votes. If it was about the popular vote to select the House of Representatives, there would be different strategies, and the vote totals would be different as a result of those strategies. Right now, it seems the strategy is to gerrymander. You can't malapportion anymore, but with sophisticated computer software and cardiographic programs, you can create excellent maps for keeping incumbents protected or keeping your party in power. North Carolina, Illinois, and Texas have all dreamed up district lines that have gone well beyond what many people believed could be pulled off. And although the results this year were skewed towards Republicans, there are Democratic states, Illinois, Massachusetts, Maryland. In Massachusetts and Maryland, for instance, all the districts combined to allow the election of one Republican out of 17 districts in those two states. Many eyes, though, are focused on what Republicans had done in 2010 in Pennsylvania. The state was carried by President Obama Yet in redistricting, 12 districts out of 18 districts in Pennsylvania were created to be more Republican than the country as a whole. Voters cast 2.7 million votes for Democratic House candidates and 2.64 million votes for Republican House candidates, which would at least imply an equal split between the two parties or a slight Democratic advantage in the state. But Pennsylvania elected 13 Republican House members and five Democrats packing, and cracking was used in southeast Pennsylvania. The Democratic vote herded into a few city districts. Berks County got split into four different districts, Montgomery County, in five. In western Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh was ringed in a way to get maximum Republican votes. Mike Doyle's Pittsburgh district contains the maximum Democratic vote. Good for him. But the districts surrounding are Republican. One Republican district, the 18th, forms two wings around the city joined by a tiny piece in the middle. It is drawn in such a way that in some locations, neighborhoods and even streets are split between the 18th. So when you see your neighbor across the street, he or she may be in the 12th or the 14th, depending on what side of the district you're in. This political might make right. Pennsylvania voters selected a Republican legislature two years before. Reapportionment is given To the legislature, that's their task. The people have spoken, Vox Populi. Another argument is, though Democrats won in the popular vote, the vast majority of counties in a state like Pennsylvania vote Republican. And the other side, of course, is that House districts must represent people and not counties. When it comes to redistricting... There isn't much that the party that's in minority in a state legislature can do, as Texas Democrats must have felt that they were huddled in a Holiday Inn in Ardmore, Oklahoma. Not unlike those Indiana Republicans of the Civil War era. In May 2003, when the 50 Texas state Democrats decamped from the state capitol in Austin and bordered several chartered buses. Then there was a larger hiatus to Albuquerque, New Mexico, for six weeks. It didn't work. The state went from a 17 to 15 Democratic edge to a 21-11 to Republican advantage in their House delegation. Well, Democrats in Texas that year must have felt like Republicans in 1980s California, reeling from the loss of 34 House seats and control of the White House and Senate. The late Representative Phil Burton, who is in the district now held by Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, drew a gerrymander that turned a one-seat Democratic deficit in California into a nine-seat majority providing a crucial boost to Tip O'Neill and his remaining control of Congress heading into the 1982 midterms. The Speaker in California is the closest thing you will ever know in the world to the Ayatollah. That was said by California Assembly Speaker Willie Brown at the time. In order to make the gerrymander plan work, Willie Brown had to power it through the Assembly, getting the measure approved at 1.20 a.m. on the final day of the spring legislative session, and then-Governor Jerry Brown signed it into law shortly before he left office in January 1983. Burton's cartographers turned a 43-seat congressional delegation that had split evenly, 22-21, one seat in favor of the Democrats, into a 45-seat block that redivided 27-18 in his party's favor. This, even though Republicans received more than 50% of the vote in the 1984 congressional elections in California and Ronald Reagan won the state. As we've discussed, there's many examples that have outraged both sides at different times. But what can be done? I think to block all partisan redistricting, there may be little that can be done. But to block the most partisan gerrymandering, odd-looking districts, and complete reversal of popular will in the state there have been a few attempts. The courts at first refused to rule on gerrymandering in 1946, with Justice Felix Frankfurter saying that the court should not enter the political thicket. That decision held for some time, but when Charles W. Baker and other Tennessee citizens alleged the 1901 law designed to apportion the state's seats for the General Assembly was virtually ignored, when Baker's suit detailed how Tennessee's reapportionment efforts ignored changes in the state, ignored population centers, Justice Brennan concluded that in that case, actually, the 14th Amendment, equal protection, had been violated and merited judicial evaluation. That case was Baker v. Carr, Reynolds v. Sims, where voters from Birmingham had alleged that apportionment of the Alabama legislature discriminated against them. The Alabama Constitution provided that there be at least one representative per county and as many senatorial districts. Ratio variances could be as great as 14 to 1 from one senatorial district to another. In the decision of Reynolds v. Sims, the principle of one person, one vote was established. In his majority decision, Chief Justice Earl Warren said, Legislators represent people, not trees or acres. Legislators are elected by voters, not farms or cities or economic interests. Sounds indisputable. Who represents acres and trees? But there is another side, and that time it was brought up by Senator Everett Dirksen of Illinois, who led a fight to pass a constitutional amendment allowing these unequal legislative districts. The forces of our national life are not brought to bear on public questions solely in proportion to the weight of numbers. If they were, the six million citizens of the Chicago area would hold sway in the entire state of Illinois without consideration of the problems of their four million fellows. His vision got darker. Politics in many states controlled just by their cities. California dominated by Los Angeles and San Francisco. Michigan by Detroit. malapportionment a good thing to defend against the tyranny of cities. Well, Dirksen's amendment never passed. But in terms of getting involved in just partisan gerrymandering, the court has had a tougher time. The Supreme Court ruled in 1986 that partisan gerrymandering was unconstitutional and could be challenged in court, but it set such a high standard of proof. Plaintiffs would have to prove that the shape of the district demonstrated both intentional discrimination against them and show the effect. In a later 2004 partisan gerrymandering case, the court deadlocked. Four justices said, no, you could not interfere in the legislature's right to redistrict. Scalia used the example of the Senate. The Senate is not equal. Does the Senate violate the 14th Amendment? Four justices argued, yes, you could. And Justice Anthony Kennedy argued that while no standard for judging had emerged yet, it may be possible to find one. Oh, quixotic Kennedy. The ordered working of our republic, he writes, and the democratic process depends on a sense of decorum and restraint. Here, one has the sense that legislative restraint was abandoned. That should not be thought to serve the interests of our political order. Nor should it be thought to serve our interest in demonstrating to the world how democracy works. Still... The court's own responsibilities require that we refrain from intervention in this instance. The failings of the many proposed standards for measuring the burden a gerrymander imposes on representational rights make our intervention improper. If workable standards do emerge to measure these burdens, however, courts should be prepared to order relief. But some states have gotten involved with some unique systems. Iowa's process, it calls, the fairest and best in the country. Iowa's redistricting principles specifically forbid the use of political affiliation, previous election results, the addresses of incumbents, or any demographic information other than population itself. Redistricting in Iowa is nonpartisan. Plans are proposed by the Legislative Services Bureau and are usually accepted by the legislature. Here's a key to Iowa's plan. No cities or towns can be divided. California, as the result of a proposition, which was opposed strenuously by Democrats who were controlling the state at the time, uses an independent citizens commission. By lottery, five Democrats, five Republicans, and four independents are appointed. They listen to testimony from community groups only, no politicians. And they make a redistricting plan that at least three members from each of those blocks, so three of the Republicans, three of the Democrats, three of the independents, must approve. In the 2010 redistricting, the California Citizens Commission issued a map that eliminated some of the atrocious gerrymandering that had occurred, but it still was a map that would lead to more Democratic districts in the state, though that does reflect the state's voting record recently. Lois Capps and David Dreyer were among the incumbents who were victims of this new plan. I tend to agree with Justice Kennedy. This is not the best thing to show the world in terms of democracy. Just like Gary Salamander was so shocking because of the egregious nature of it. No matter how you do redistricting, there will be one side or the other that's going to win out. But I think what angers people, mostly, are the outrageous cases. So how do you avoid that? Some of these commissions may point the right way. There's another factor that doesn't get discussed much these days in this process, and it's somewhat of a historical point, and that is that All this redistricting, control that state legislatures have over their congressional brethren. is also a manifestation of one of the last few ways that a state still influences the federal government. And that is one of the checks and balances that goes all the way back to the founding of the nation. One reason for the hesitance of the judges in interfering with the process. It's also, in my view, a call for voters to start being more concerned with your state legislative elections. If you just go out to vote every four years and then wonder why your president is not getting the Congress that you want, may have to be more aware of who your state legislator is, vote accordingly. During the Constitutional Convention, there was a discussion of whether or not legislatures should decide who can vote in presidential and house election. Should they include people who are recent immigrants to the country? Should they include people who have property, who pay taxes or otherwise? The Constitutional Convention notes reveal Mr. Madison's speech during the Constitutional Convention as follows. A republic may be converted into an aristocracy or an oligarchy as well by limiting the number capable of being elected as the number authorized to elect in all cases where the representatives of the people will have a personal interest distinct from that of their constituents, there's the same reason for being jealous of them as there was for relying on them with full confidence when they had a common interest with their constituents. I guess a way of simplifying this speech is when your representative's voting for the taxes that, that you will pay and she will pay, there's a common interest. When your representative votes for a road that she will drive on and you will drive on, there's a common interest. When members of the state legislature are crafting districts that will help their parties stay in power, there's not the same common interest with you, and we should be jealous of them and approach it that way in law. There would seem to be some wisdom in that. I want to thank you for listening. Remember the premium podcast for My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. We've got lots of content items there for those who are members. Bonus episodes. We go deeper into some of the topics that we've talked about. That's at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. There's a link for that. Thanks for listening.